0: Hey, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. I'm really excited for today's show. This is the first installment of my new series, Forensics, Dr. Judy Investigates. For those of you who may not know, I'm both a clinical neuropsychologist and a forensic psychologist, which means that I have experience in applying my clinical knowledge and neuropsychological specialty to the legal arena. The practice of forensic psychology in my world usually involves evaluating individuals who are involved in one way or another with the legal system, and then providing expert witness courtroom testimony on my findings, which include understanding the psychological underpinnings of a person's behavior, diagnosing any mental conditions, prescribing a treatment plan, and making predictions about the likelihood that these individuals can benefit and recover from such a plan. In my new series, Forensics, Dr. Judy Investigates, I will delve into relevant legal cases, both past and present, and discuss specifically the psychological underpinnings behind these cases. I'll also give you practical takeaways to help you bolster mental wellness, assist others in need, And for all of us to live meaningful and fulfilling lives in our communities today's show is the first episode of a three-part series i'm going to do that's called behind the crime scene we're going to explore some of the most important psychological themes that are looked at in the hugely popular netflix program crime scene the vanishing at the cecil hotel for those of you guys who haven't seen this great program it's directed by emmy award-winning and Academy Award-nominated director, Joe Berlinger. It's a four-part docu-series framed around the disappearance and death of a young lady named Elisa Lamb at the CISO Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Amazingly, this Netflix show that I'm so fortunate to be a part of has shot up to the number one spot on Netflix since its debut on February 10th. People have been absolutely obsessed with this case. It has received a ton of media attention. At the time of this recording, there are over 33.3 million results on Google and over 5,000 articles online about this program. Even though the facts of this case are clear, people are still convinced there is more to the story. Conspiracy theories abound. In this three-part series, I'm gonna help you understand the psychology of why this fascinating case has gripped the nation. In this first episode, I'll break down the main themes of this case, and in the next episode, the incredible director of the series, Joe Bullinger, will join me, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say. And in the final episode, I'll answer all of your burning questions that have continued to pour in about this case. Okay, so spoiler alert: consider yourself warned, because in this episode, I am going to delve into some of the details that are revealed by the end of the docu series. And just a note that. All of the opinions in these episodes are my own. They don't reflect the views of Netflix or any of the people who are a part of producing or participating in the series. I'm going to start this episode today by describing the case for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Then I'm going to give you my take on why this case is so important. We're going to take a deep dive into three main areas today. And I think this is going to help demystify this case for all of you. First, why have people had the intense reaction they've had to this case? And what's the psychology behind conspiracy theories? Second, what did Elisa's personal Tumblr blog reveal about her mental health? I'm going to read you excerpts from her blogs and explain what may have been going on for her when she wrote them. Third, I'm going to share with you details about the autopsy report that help explain why Elisa's bipolar disorder was noted to be a significant contributing factor in her death. Before delving into those themes, I wanna say that I'm so glad that the Netflix program included the important educational component of helping all of us to better understand mental illness. As I mentioned, mental illness is still so stigmatized to this day, especially certain types of clinical conditions like bipolar disorder. And despite us as a society talking about it and normalizing it more than we have in the past, we still have a lot of work to do, and I really hope that this episode can help shed more light on this important theme. The self stigma someone can experience when they suffer mental health symptoms can be so difficult. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about the social stigma people often have towards individuals who struggle with mental illness, but what about the sufferer themselves? This is a huge part of what I spoke to on the Netflix docuseries. Elisa was actually very public in terms of her inner thoughts. She wrote detailed blogs on Tumblr, which we will take a look at today. And you can see that she really struggled with this concept of being diagnosed with a mental illness. She struggled with what she had to do to treat it. And it really did lead to some of the difficulties that she's had throughout her short life. This really resonated with so many on the internet. Other sufferers have talked about how Elisa's own admission of her self stigma helped them to feel less isolated. And they also affirmed that their own experiences reflect a similar belief system and thought process. This self-stigma can absolutely lead to so much shame and guilt in the individual. It can hurt their self-esteem so that they have an even harder time engaging with the treatment system and following through on prescribed intervention plans. This in turn decreases their quality of life and makes it even more tenuous to manage her condition. In relation to Elisa's personal story, I'd like to share some of my personal experiences about mental health concerns in BIPOC communities. The rates of mental illness in BIPOC communities are similar to those in non-Hispanic white communities, yet they are often undertreated. They don't readily present in the mental health sector for services, and they're more likely to terminate treatment prematurely or drop out of services. I myself have worked with many high-need populations and disenfranchised patients, low-income patients, and also those from various ethnic backgrounds both in my private practice and as a researcher. I'll link some of my research studies in the show notes below if you wanted to take a look. Both the research and clinical evidence shows that self-stigma is so incredibly significant, and there are misunderstandings from the person's community about mental illness and beliefs in specific cultures. Right now, I'll just speak from my own culture. I hail from traditional Chinese culture, same as Elisa. Research and clinical evidence shows that self-stigma and community stigma is really high in these cultural groups. There are many attributions of blame, fear, and dangerousness towards someone who is depressed. Research shows that Asians who struggle with mental illness express a lower level of self-respect. They felt like they were damaged or not worthy of good things in life. Some research has even shown that community beliefs included ideas that people with mental illness were not suitable for marriage. And they were relegated to a lower social standing overall. Many of these stigmatizing attitudes are also seen in a number of other BIPOC communities. And if you're interested, I take a look at the Surgeon General's report titled Mental Health, Culture, Race, and Ethnicity. I'll also link to this document in the show notes below. All in all, there is still a lot of ideas and beliefs about people who are mentally ill out there, what it means for them as a human being, and what opportunities they should be afforded in this life due to their condition. Social and self-stigmas can cause a person with mental illness to not follow through with treatment or to feel that they're incredibly different from other people in a really negative way. And that can evoke hopelessness. When people feel hopeless, they're not gonna do the things that they need to do for themselves to feel better. For mentally ill individuals, helping them to learn self-advocacy and building their self-confidence that they can enact positive outcomes for themselves is a huge part of helping them get the treatment they need and for them to live their most productive and meaningful lives our country often prizes things like individuality and privacy america is a highly individualistic country one of the most individualistic in the entire world this means that we stress individual goals and the rights of the individual person and what we know is that research shows people with major psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia. They fare better in countries that embrace collectivistic values, which focus more on group goals, what's best for the collective group, and personal relationships. In these communities where the collective good is prioritized, the idea that you actively intervene when you see someone struggling in your community is much more commonplace than individualistic societies like America. In collectivistic countries, patients have less psychiatric hospitalizations and less severe episodes. And clinicians and researchers have posited that it's because people are really rooted in their groups. And so there are more people to notice when something is amiss. So perhaps there are some valuable lessons we can take from these more collectivistic communities so that we can help sufferers get the help and feel good about themselves in the process, even as they contend with a mental health condition. I think this is the perfect time to be discussing all of this because this is a unprecedented moment in time where our mental health cannot be taken for granted. We are now almost a year into the pandemic. According to the APA Annual Stress in America report, which I will also link in the show notes, nearly eight in 10 adults say that the pandemic is a significant source of stress in their life. Three in five say the number of issues America faces is overwhelming to them. And nearly one in five adults say that their mental health is worse now than at this time last year. There's a lot more research than this that shows people are truly suffering. People are struggling with all of the unknowns and the fact that social interactions aren't what they used to be. I've specifically had bipolar disorder sufferers write into me over the last few days and talk about how elucidating it was to hear me clarify the features of this condition that are not well-known. And people have expressed that they wanna hear more about the symptoms causes, and treatment options, so that they can better advocate for themselves and other sufferers. I really think it's so important that we have more of these conversations to bring greater mental health awareness to the public and in the process, elevate the good work that's already done in the documentary. I really hope that this discussion today will help clarify some things for you and help you personally. We need to have more compassion for people who are struggling with mental health concerns, whether that's someone you know or yourself. And we need to give more attention to providing the education people need to empower themselves and their loved ones. I am so glad that I got to take part in a project that spent some time exploring this and ultimately dismissing the conspiracy theories that took attention away from the truth. As I mentioned earlier on this episode, I want to frame some of the discussions around the details about Elisa Lamb's mental health that were highlighted in the docuseries series and also from other available records like her blog post and her autopsy report. I also wanna talk about why it took the public a while before they could accept that what the facts bore out was that her death was accidental with a significant contributory factor of bipolar disorder. Some are still not accepting this to this day, and we will dive into the psychology behind this phenomenon that is continuing to unfold before our eyes. Before I deep dive into today's content, I wanna take a beat and appreciate and consider Elisa's family and what they might be going through right now. I believe that the Netflix docu-series was extremely respectful to Elisa's story. They were really trying to show that she was this multi-dimensional human being with amazing qualities and that she isn't just this mystery to be solved. I think that's really important. And I'm sure that as the media attention is becoming more prevalent about this case, the family may be struggling with some of their own feelings of dealing with the grief of losing Elisa. I just wanna make sure that everyone understands that grief is really difficult and not being part of the conversation can also feel difficult. But sometimes people choose not to be part of that conversation because they want to privately grieve and they should absolutely be allowed to do that. The producers of this docu series did reach out to Elisa's family to see if they would like to participate. And according to the director, the family didn't respond, but also nobody told them don't do this. And I think that's why the approach has been so respectful, because we really just want to make sure that we don't diminish her just to this concept and that we really truly honor her legacy as a whole person. From my perspective, I really hope that her story is something that can help educate people and to help people feel they are not alone in their struggles. I think this feeling of isolation is so huge for people who suffer from mental illness. And I hope that when we talk about her story, that people who are listening will know that you do have a community. You can grow that community. And there is a lot that you can do to empower yourself. So let's talk a little bit about the details of the series, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the CISO Hotel. This program premiered on February 10th on Netflix and is a four-part docu-series about the mysterious death of Canadian college student Elisa Lam after she disappeared in February 2013 from the CISO Hotel, where she was staying for a few days on her California trip. The 21-year-old's body was found several weeks later, drowned inside a water tank on the roof of the hotel. Nearly a decade and dozens of conspiracy theories later, Elisa's case remains unsolved. Or is it? The series starts by exploring the setting of Elisa's disappearance and where she was last seen, which was the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. The program spent a lot of time on Cecil Hotel, visiting with local historians to understand its cultural significance. The Cecil Hotel is a historical landmark in the middle of the Skid Row neighborhood of Los Angeles. It has been the site of many negative happenings since it opened its doors. When the Great Depression hit in the 30s, It lost its initial glory. Several guests killed themselves by jumping out of upper floor windows in the 60s, and two notorious killers lived there, including Richard Ramirez during the 80s. Eventually, it transitioned into a single-room occupancy business known as an SRO, and people started to associate it with a place where people were down on their luck, but at the same time, it was also mixed with out-of-town and out-of-country tourists. Students and other people who might just be passing through town on their way to another destination. After a review of the history of Cecil, the series continues to highlight the disappearance of Elisa Lam. At the time, she was traveling on her own to different parts of California from her hometown in Vancouver, Canada, before she arrived in Los Angeles. She had spent some time in San Diego prior and was meant to check out of the hotel on the 1st of February. But her parents didn't hear from her on that day. And up to that point, Elisa had remained in contact with her parents every single day while she was traveling. Soon, the police officially began their investigation to help try to locate her. They released a security video of her last public appearance, which was inside one of the hotel's elevators on January 31st. I don't think the police expected this, but the video went crazy viral. People talked about how Elisa's behavior seemed odd and that she seemed frightened, and this sparked a huge internet reaction. In fact, it drew worldwide interest due to Elisa's unusual behavior, and multiple internet sleuths have extensively analyzed and discussed the video to try and solve the mystery surrounding Elisa's disappearance. A few weeks into the investigation, and after hotel guests had complained about low water pressure and discolored water coming out of the taps of the hotel, Elisa's body was found on the 19th of February in 2013 in one of the hotel water tanks on the roof. But a lot still didn't make sense, and the community hung on to the fact that something nefarious was going on, and all was not what it seems. And this brings us to the first area I want to get into, the psychology behind conspiracy theories. As people awaited more information from the investigation, many conspiracy theories were touted, YouTubers started channels dedicated to trying to solve the disappearance of Elisa. And even when the autopsy report was released and the death was officially ruled an accident, the conspiracy theories didn't stop. You can see the continued action on YouTube channels, reddits, personal blogs, and social posts. The Netflix series interviews the internet sleuths who tried to solve the case alongside LAPD detectives who were conducting the official investigation and detailed the investigative process of the case. Each of the internet sleuths felt personally connected to Elisa. They wanted justice for Elisa, and they came up with all sorts of reasons why the public investigation conducted by the LAPD and the findings that they released were hiding what had actually happened to her and the specific cause of her death. And in fact, there were a lot of odd coincidences that we will touch on now. For example, people talked about the fact that Elisa's death had some eerie similarities to the film Dark Water. This movie features a story of a mother and her daughter who lived in a Cecil Hotel-like building. In a rather disturbing connection between the movie and the case, the character, whose name was Cece, died after falling into a water tank. There was also a tuberculosis breakout among Skid Row around the time that Elisa was staying at the Cecil. And the tuberculosis test that was used to assess whether or not someone had been infected was coincidentally called the lamb elisa spelled exactly the same way. Online conspiracy theorists started to wonder whether ELISA was some kind of bioweapon that was sent to infect the homeless population of Skid Row to try to reduce their numbers, and then killed by a government organization to cover up the crime. Also, the last known location outside of the Cecil that people had seen ELISA was the last bookstore. And if you go to the website of the last bookstore, it has on this registration information a postal code. When you put that postal code into Google Maps, it pinpoints to Vancouver, Canada, and specifically to the cemetery where Elisa's body is buried. So that's just another odd coincidence that people couldn't set aside. And it wasn't only conspiracy theories. People really seemed to want to find a murderer rather than believe that Elisa's death was a tragic accident. Internet sleuths started to look at the music of Mexican death metal musician Morbid. And in some of his lyrics, they thought that he was talking about wanting to or having killed somebody. And all of a sudden, he was connected to the Elisa Lam death, and people thought that he had murdered her. He started to receive terrible online bullying, and it eventually culminated in him trying to take his own life because he was so tortured. And aside from actual living people, there were other theories about how Lisa might have been killed by evil spirits, or that maybe she was playing the Korean elevator game in the strange footage that was released. This game supposedly transports people who play it to an alternate dimension, and some people believe that in this alternate dimension, she died while in a disoriented state. Let me be clear, the evidence does not suggest that Elisa was murdered, that there was a killer on the loose, or that this was a result of some strange paranormal phenomenon. It is, in fact, a terrible tragedy, and by the end of the four episodes in the Netflix special, the mysterious circumstances around her death are explained, and her case is considered solved. The strange coincidences that I just discussed are just that, strange coincidences. Yet despite this, what is so incredible is that I'm seeing online everywhere that people still don't believe what the facts bore out. Conspiracy theories are still very much alive. And there are some people who do not accept Elisa's death was an accident, which essentially happened because it was likely fueled by a psychotic episode. She wasn't taking her medications as directed. And the stress that she likely encountered while off her medication regimen in a strange city by herself, on Skid Row, no less, probably contributed to her experiencing a manic episode with psychotic features. This is a very prominent phenomena of people who suffer bipolar disorder one. And these are the circumstances that may have led to the accidental death. It's interesting that eight years after the fact, and after such a detailed look through the Netflix documentary, that people still can't accept the truth. If you look at the hashtag Lisa Lam, it is trending on Twitter right now. One user writes, I'm convinced it was an accident, but the only thing that I can't get over is the Elisa Lam tuberculosis test. Like what in the F? Another user on Twitter writes, just binge watch Cecil Hotel and I am 100% convinced that the hotel manager has some form of involvement in the murder of Elisa Lam. Of course, there are some voices of reason, too. And one Twitter user writes, can someone explain to me how people can't believe that the cause of death of Elisa Lam was an accident? I was fully convinced that it was because she was in a manic episode. And episode four confirmed it. Not everything needs to be a conspiracy. So as you can see, there's a lot of discussion around this still. And people sometimes can have such a struggle for how to process information that just doesn't fit what their pre-existing ideas were. I think part of this is because we want to be able to explain what's going on around us. Having explanatory mechanisms for bad things that happen in the world help us to feel like we're in personal control. It can be really scary if you can't explain something horrible that happens because that potentially means that it could happen to you or somebody that you know and love. I really believe that this is part of the interest that the true crime genre generates because people wanna know, what kind of important lessons can we learn from these horrible cases to apply to our own lives? How do I make sure that a psychopath isn't among us? How do we avoid these traps that could happen that could cause danger to myself or others? Even as media responses has been so skeptical, you can see what likely happen when you read some of Elisa's blog entries. Her blog is actually live even to today, and I will link her blog entries in the show notes. I've hand-selected a few of them for you today that really illustrates her thoughts about her mental health condition, the battle inside her mind, and what she thought life had in store for her in general. Let's get into some of those now. On October 21st, 2011, on her Tumblr, she wrote exhaustion- I've never been this physically and emotionally exhausted. I've cried more tears than I can handle. My eyes are so swollen. My throat is hoarse. The bones in my body ache. I've had only two hours of sleep. Dear Tumblr, you are the solace to my woes. You make me remember that there is a wider world out there and that I have only seen a fraction of it. Please send some love this way. So her symptoms were quite severe. It was really, really difficult for her. And this was a couple of years before she arrived at the Cecil on September 18th, 2010, she wrote a blog post and she says, school has started and I do not have time to think. It doesn't help that I can't think for the matter. I took a long unaccounted for break from school, half a year down the drain where I did not do anything productive nor anything worth knowing now. It seems my most prized organ no longer works the way it once did, and I feel sluggish all day, sleepy, mopey, and tired. Unable to concentrate, too. I can't write properly, nor can I think of the appropriate words without pausing for a few moments. It is incredibly difficult to even remember what I did yesterday, let alone try to remember what was covered in the class. To say the least, I won't be able to put together a proper post for a while. Then again, who cares whether or not it makes any sense? So in a lot of her writings, she was actually extremely articulate. And even in this particular post, she was still articulate, but there's more run-on sentences. It definitely seems like she's a bit more disorganized. And people sometimes don't realize that that is a symptom of both depression, unipolar depression and bipolar disorder, that you can have difficulties focusing and concentrating and difficulty making decisions and that your brain feels sluggish. And in fact, a lot of people are misdiagnosed with ADHD because of this. And- I do want to make a comment that, you know, when we talk about mental health diagnoses, it is so important that we get to the right one because that is how you know what kind of treatments you should be using to help that individual. And there were some concerns because there was some evidence that perhaps Elisa was also prescribed at some point a stimulant medication because they thought that she may have had attention deficit disorder. And obviously, I don't know. I haven't treated Elisa. I don't have any other information on this piece. But I will say that from my own private practice, I've seen this happen to a number of my patients who thought that they, uh, because they had these concentration difficulties that went along with their depression or anxiety, that actually they had ADHD. And so then a provider would treat them with that medication and then It actually ended up making some of their symptoms worse, particularly when somebody does have a bipolar disorder with manic features. If you take stimulants, that could actually increase the risk of an episode. And also, sometimes people end up abusing their stimulant medications. We don't have any evidence that that's what Elisa did. But again, for my private practice, many patients started taking these stimulant medications and they became addicted to them, even though they were for supposedly their mental health treatment. So then they started to doctor shop. They would have several doctors prescribing them with the same stimulant medication. They would get them off their friends. And so I just wanted to say that it's so important for us to understand that this is a lesser known symptom of depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder that people can have difficulties focusing. It could look like attention deficit, but it's not. It's part of the depression and the anxiety or the bipolar disorder. Let's check out a couple of our other posts. And I think that this will be elucidating to how she has been struggling with this. A lot of times when people are in the depths of their depression and bipolar disorder has sort of the two sides, it has the manic or hypomanic side where people are kind of more up and they do things that are more impulsive. And then there's the side where they become extremely depressed. And actually for a lot of people who suffer from bipolar disorder, they find that after a period of mania or hypomania, they have a really significant crash into a horrible depression. And it's like going from one end of the spectrum to the other. And Elisa on November 3rd of 2011 says, I'm having the worst 96 hours of my life. I have been repeatedly disappointed by the people closest to me. It is a miracle that I have not turned to drugs. I'm at my end. If one more person pushes me over, I have no idea how I'm going to trust anyone or believe the world is good. Suicide is not an option for me, but in the last 96 hours, I've considered it to be a possibility multiple times. I'm just that disappointed with the human race. And of course, this is so very sad and concerning that, again, people don't sometimes recognize how when people are in the depths of their depression, it's really hard for them to see beyond their suffering in the moment, and they just want it to end. And that's where the impulsive thoughts about suicide can come up. But for some people, it's not that impulsive. It's also planned. And we really have to pay attention to our loved ones who say that they're depressed and who say that they might hurt themselves. We have to take them seriously at face value to make sure that we can protect them to the best of our ability because you never know you know what somebody will say or do when they're in the depths of their depression and just might be wanting the pain to be over in that very moment without thinking about the long-term trajectory. Like, well, maybe I will feel better. Maybe this moment will pass. It's really significant for people who have that level of severe depression. And we just need to be able to pay a little bit more attention to that if you have somebody among your circle who struggles with these feelings. On June 2nd, 2012 on Tumblr, Elisa actually writes while she is supposedly in a manic state. And she says, for your viewing pleasure, my current adventures in hypomania haven't slept in 24 hours, bad choice in retrospect is that I had a cup of coffee because my hands are actually shaking, which has never happened before. I'm not doctor, but it's very much like what happens to bipolar people when they're in hypomania. Okay, Google, let's see what you define hypomania, inflated self-esteem or grandiosity that in caps, my self-esteem can handle anything Four explanation marks, decreased need for sleep. And then caps, no sleep for 24 plus hours and I feel fine. I am so functional, more talkative than usual or pressure to keep talking. And then she writes in caps, I'm sending intensive multi-text about random things to friends. So I'm writing a lot about myself and putting it on the internet and flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing. She says, not really distractibility. And then she writes, okay, this is actually weird because in math class, I wasn't paying attention because I was working on my brilliant, extraordinary idea and sketching madly. And when I actually started paying attention, I understood the concepts about 80%, even though I haven't been to class in two weeks, I am a B A M F. I am making this list of shit I will do. And I will do all the things I have put off because I can do this. I am Batman. So that just gives you a little glimpse into how she was feeling and thinking when she was in the middle of either a manic or hypomanic episode, which is a less severe episode of the highs that come with bipolar disorder. And you can see that her thoughts are more disorganized. She's a bit more grandiose. She's a bit more all over the place in terms of what she's writing and actually not as cogent as when she might be in a more depressed state. And this is when people become really impulsive. They have these ideas that they can do superhuman things. And this is a time where a lot of people end up getting into a lot of risky behaviors. And because the individual has these highs and lows, that's why it's so important for them to really stay on top of their treatment. And particularly with bipolar disorder, the gold standard treatment is a really good medication strategy and cognitive behavioral therapy. I got a ton of questions about the medication piece, what medications was Elisa Lam on and what is the treatment that people have for bipolar disorder. So let's get into some of that now. She wrote a blog post about this on May 3rd, 2012, and she writes, here's a cocktail of prescriptions I take for depression. And there's a picture of five different pills. In this particular list, she talks about Dexedrine, which was for, as I mentioned, the aforementioned supposed ADHD, which we're not sure if she had or not. She takes Effexor. She takes Welbutrin. And she also takes antipsychotics. She writes, I wonder what will happen when I take these things long-term. Will I ever not need them? I call it the breakfast of champions, and I hate that I have to take it every day. I'm basically taking these pills because I can't handle life. Life is hard. And since I can't handle hard things, I need pharmaceuticals. Part of me is still in denial that I'm not sick. And this can be solved without pills. No matter the argument against, I think taking the pills is weakness. I am not strong enough. I do not have the courage or conviction to do the right thing. And then there's always a cynic saying depression is made up disease. So big pharma can make us all dependent on these pills and thus they are rich. So as you can see here, there's so much struggle that Elisa had about her mental illness and also the fact that she had to take medication. She really struggled with it. She thought it was a weakness that she had to. She thought that because she quote unquote, couldn't handle life. That's why she had to take it. She wondered if she could get to a place where she wouldn't need it. And she had a little mild conspiracy theory about big pharma. So you can see how this actually led her to go off of her medication multiple times in her life. And after the investigation went on for a while, her family actually said, you know, this is a pattern that she has. She gets off of her medication. Then she has an episode. And during these mood episodes, she'll think that people are after her. She'll go running to hide. She'll hide under the bed. And so this was a pattern. She continued to struggle with having to take the medication at all. Again, as we surmise what may have happened to her, this is very common with individuals with bipolar disorder, they will get off of their medication occasionally, maybe because they're starting to feel a little better, so they think they don't need it, or because of the struggles they have with the self-stigma, they're trying to test themselves and see if they can do okay without it, and even some other times, when they're in the middle of a psychotic episode, the voices in their head will say, don't take that medication, it's dangerous, it's poison. So we don't know exactly what went into Elisa's mindset that led her to go off of medication multiple times in her life, but I think it's probably a mixture of all of those things. So let's move on to the autopsy report. As I mentioned, there was an official autopsy that concluded that her death was officially ruled a suicide with bipolar disorder, as a contributory cause the autopsy report is available publicly as well it's a 27 page report that looks at all of the different types of tests that were submitted and what i want to talk about is how we figured out that she wasn't taking the medications that she was prescribed So on the autopsy report, particularly on page 23 to 25, there's a list of prescription drugs that she was prescribed. Dexedrine, it was two 10 milligram capsules. As I mentioned, this was a stimulant prescribed for ADHD. And we're not sure if she actually had that. Lamotrigine, which is also known as Lamictal, she had a 100 milligram prescription. And this is a anticonvulsant and a mood stabilizer prescribed for epilepsy and bipolar disorder. She was also prescribed with Seroquel, 25 milligrams. This is an atypical antipsychotic and it's prescribed for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and sometimes major depressive disorder. And when we say that it's an atypical antipsychotic, what that means is that it's actually um, a second generation antipsychotic. It tends to have less side effects than the primary antipsychotics that were available before these came out. She was also prescribed venlafaxine, which is also known as Effexor, 225 milligrams. This is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It's an antidepressant that is commonly prescribed for major depressive disorder, panic disorder, social phobia, and generalized anxiety. And finally, she was prescribed bupropion, or it's also known as Walbutrin, 300 milligrams. And this is kind of known to be a mood stabilizer as well as a type of atypical antidepressant. And it sometimes has a bit of a stimulating effect. I've talked to psychiatrists who are a bit cautious about prescribing Wellbutrin to somebody who has bipolar tendencies because sometimes it can cause them to have symptoms that look a little bit like hypomania and mania. So let's take a look at the toxicology results. That's on page 26 to 27. And based on the evidence that we have, it looks like Elisa was not on any illegal drugs. She was not drinking alcohol. And so none of those things could explain the odd behavior people had witnessed or what she might've been experiencing shortly before her death. The toxicology results suggested that Elisa took at least one antidepressant that day, that she had taken her second antidepressant and mood stabilizer somewhat recently, but not on the day it also shows that she hadn't taken her antipsychotic medication recently and coupled with the fact that they went through her belongings and they looked at the number of pills that she had in her bags and they looked at the fill date and they realized there's more pills that are in here than they should be this is how the forensic pathologist came to the conclusion that she was undertaking her medications and when someone is not taking their antipsychotics, there could be a stronger risk of a manic episode and certainly one that could emerge with psychotic features, which was my theory. And I talked about this in the series. And sometimes if you just take the antidepressants alone, but you don't take the mood stabilizer or the antipsychotic, it actually raises your risk of experiencing a manic episode. So I believe that when you look at her behaviors in the infamous elevator video, and you're seeing the results of the toxicology report, and you learn from the family that she has this history of going off her medications, and when she does, she tends to have these significant episodes where she becomes fearful for her life, she starts to experience delusions, she starts to hide under the bed, and that at least on one of these occasions, she had to be hospitalized because her symptoms were so severe. It is completely consistent with the fact that Elisa most likely Experienced a manic episode with psychotic features. And essentially, she was running around trying to hide from whatever nefarious person or person she thought was after her at the time. And it's possible that she ran to the roof and she looked at the water tanks and she thought that that was a good place to hide. And once she got in the tank, though, there was no way to get back out. And I don't believe that she was trying to take her own life that day. I think she was trying to save her own life, actually. And That's really what the facts show. The facts show that this was truly an accident. It was an extremely tragic accident. And this is why the bipolar disorder was a significant contributory factor. The reason why that is on the autopsy report is because, as I described, she wasn't taking the medications that she needed to try to manage her symptoms better. And if she had a psychotic break and a manic episode, she may have been experiencing these delusions that caused her to eventually climb into the tank. And that was the part that is the contributory cause. All right, guys, we covered a lot of ground today. We talked about why this case is so important in helping to educate and empower people with mental illness. We got into the background of this docu-series and talked about the ongoing media reactions. We checked out her blogs, reviewed her autopsy report, and I really hope those details helps to bear out the facts a bit more that truly, this is an extremely tragic accident that happened, that her bipolar disorder, which was likely not well-managed at the time of her death, was a significant contributory cause to why things happened the way they did. In the next episode, I have the incredibly talented director of the Netflix docuseries, Joe Berlinger, and I can't wait to talk to him about this case. Then, in the final episode of this three part series, I'm going to get to all of your questions. I have been inundated with comments and questions from all of you, and I'm going to do my best to get to as many of them as I can. If you have any questions between now and then, please DM me at Dr. Judy Ho on Instagram. I will also give significant, tangible tips on how we can take better care of ourselves and each other during this difficult time especially if you find yourself struggling with any kind of mental health symptoms from depression, anxiety, burnout, bipolar disorder, addiction, and more. We are going to cover a really great and systematic plan on how you can take better care of yourself. I wanna leave this episode just by saying that a big part of why I wanted to do this series is because I want to increase people's understanding of the psychology behind all of this. We talked about the stigma of mental illness and the types of judgments that we might have on people who suffer, even if it's not sometimes fully conscious to us. And in the next couple of episodes, we're definitely going to get into a bit more why people delve into conspiracy theories. What is the psychology behind that? And what makes it hard for people to accept the truth? Some of that has to do with stigma as well, but there are other really important psychological effects that we haven't talked about in this episode that I definitely wanna get to next time. And I promise you, it will make you understand so much more why people do the things that they do, and maybe even find it within yourself to have more compassion for people who spout these conspiracy theories. There truly is something that they're trying to fill in their life, and something that they're trying to get control over, And in some ways delving into conspiracy theories is their coping mechanism, even if it's a misshapen coping mechanism. So to close, if you have a mental health condition, you are not alone. One in five American adults experience some form of mental illness in a given year. And across the population, one in every 20 adults is living with a serious mental health condition like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I want you to know mental illness is not your fault. It does not mean that you are weak. And luckily, we have a lot of great treatments now to help you get better. So if you feel that you or the people around you need resources and support, you can start by going to this great website. It's the National Alliance on Mental Illness at NAMI.org, which I will also link to in the show notes below. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. And remember, if you have a question you want answered on this podcast, DM me at Dr. Judy Ho on Instagram, and I will try as best as I can to get to them in the next few weeks. I'm Dr. Judy, and remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.